episode 187, Pharmacists, MTM, and the Opioid Crisis. Today on the Relentless Health Value podcast, I speak with Sandra Liel from Sinfonia Rx and Todd Yuri from the Pharmacy Podcast Network and New Season. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today on the Relentless Health Value podcast, we have two guests. First, Sandra Liao, who is from Sinfonia Rx. I am also honored to be speaking today with Todd Yuri, the founder of the one and only Pharmacy Podcast Network. But wait, there's more. Todd is also Director of Strategy for New Season, a nationwide group of accredited opiate addiction treatment centers. Today, we talk about the intersection of pharmacists, medication therapy management, MTM, and the opioid crisis, the worst addiction epidemic in our country's history. In fact, opioid overdoses accounted for more than 42,000 deaths in 2016 more than any previous year on record, an estimated 40% of those opioid overdose deaths involved a prescription opioid. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Today on the podcast, I am delighted to welcome Sandra Lial. Hi, how are you? And we also have Todd Yuri. Stacy, how are you? We are going to be talking about the intersection of two topics. One of them is medication therapy management, affectionately known as MTM. And then we also have the opioid crisis slash opioid management. So to kick this off, why don't, Sandra, could you just explain very quickly what is MTM, just in case anyone is coming in cold? Sure. So medication therapy management, as you mentioned, MTM, uh, it is essentially the review of medications uh, between a pharmacist or other healthcare professionals and a patient or a patient's caregiver. The goal of that review is to ultimately resolve any potential problems that the patient might be facing and to actually optimize the therapy for that patient. Is this going on pervasively? Like, you know, is MTM a thing? And if so, in kind of what context? There are different ways to describe MTM. So a lot of people think of MTM Part D, which is the medication therapy uh, management requirement for Medicare Part D. So that is a very structured form of MTM that is mandated and regulated and that has to be offered to a patient, which they can choose to opt out of. But in general, the more global concept of medication therapy management is happening uh, beyond Medicare Part D patients. So this could be pharmacists in a community setting, pharmacists within health systems or in different systems working to be able to do the same types of reviews for the medication therapy that the patient is taking. Got it. So if it is a Medicare Part D patient, then it is a mandate unless the patient opts out. And if it's a health system, then they might choose to do MTM in order to meet some quality metric or to achieve some goal that they have determined. That's correct. Yep. So Todd, let's bring the opioid crisis into some perspective here. How are we in the healthcare industry, you know, how, how should we be processing what is going on in the country relative to opioids today? 
revised information from drugabuse.gov, for example, which was revised in March of 2018, has documented that we have about 115 people per day dying from an overdose of opioids. This is uh, leading by heroin. However, a very close second is prescription medications where the patient has done absolutely nothing wrong but through the therapy that was initially prescribed, went on because I had a broken shoulder. I went in for some surgery. I got, you know, a 90-day supply of some opioid painkiller. Next thing you know, I didn't even realize I was addicted. And two years later, I'm still taking them. And then the synthetics in the fentanyl family has also produced an extremely serious national crisis which really elevates the death rate 100, 200 times. And the burden from a capitalistic perspective and the economy and taxing and the expense of this is running about $78 billion a year. And what that should tell us as a healthcare collaborative between pharmacists, doctors, nurses, specialists, everyone, podcasters like you and I, Stacy, is we all have to be involved. There is no one in healthcare that can't be involved, some more than others. Sandra, just I'm such a fan of hers. The reason why, Stacy, I've been so excited not only to talk with Sandra about this concept, but get this out to our networks and through the Pharmacy Podcast Network, we're going to blast this out everywhere. That is, why in the world aren't we doing something purposeful? And even at the state level, we could pick a state that is most flexible in the world of Medicaid and having some of the states realize, hey, wow. So in the world of the opioid epidemic, who is in the healthcare field, the provider's field, who is not being used to their full potential? And I stand up and start screaming, pharmacist, 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 which is the truth. And it really is because the community pharmacist, for example, sees this happening with their patients. They're coming into their shop every day, their pharmacy every day. The long-term care pharmacist sees it happening in the nursing homes. The specialty pharmacist sees it happening. Sandra sees it happening. So it's, it's to me, the concept of crossing the intersection of medication therapy management and medication assisted treatment, MAT. So MMM, this would be this would make a cool logo. <laughs> MTM crossing with MAT. And to me, knowing what pharmacists do when they're well versed in practicing medication therapy management, combining that with medication assisted treatment, which means you're combining uh, medication with counseling. And if you were to wrap that all together. I think we could see a major rush to recovery that we don't see today based on the underutilized member of the healthcare team, which is the pharmacist. And I think that you are highlighting an often repeated tale, i.e. pharmacists being underutilized, the most underutilized and highly capable at the same time member of a, of a care team. Based on what Todd just said, Sandra, as the chief operating officer of an MTM entity, how do you view the intersection of MTM and, and opioids? 
I absolutely agree with everything Todd said, and that is one of our goals in working in, in this work. And specifically, even personally, I, I ended up changing my own practice from you know, being in a very integrated collaborative practice model to really looking for solutions at scale because there's so much need out there. For us, we essentially try to provide that pharmacist expertise to the review and especially in this epidemic that we're having with opioids, coming up with solutions that make sense, that are sustainable and that really have reach for patients that otherwise would have no services available. In the design that we we try to implement, we are looking very comprehensively at the entire profile for the patient. But as we're getting uh, more and more requests for solutions, we're then trying to build custom programs that really rely on a collaboration to identify what the barriers are for those individual patients, um, and then trying to overcome those barriers with very specific solutions to them. And it could be things like uh, language barriers. It could be things like high deductibles that patients are experiencing, or even just not being able to access medication in a way that makes sense for them. They're just not necessarily, patients are not necessarily even responding to what they're being prescribed or there's just so many barriers out there. So the concept of what we're trying to do is take those issues and really build a framework around them and then introduce a solution that becomes a constant solution and not something that's sporadic or, you know, just uh, it happens to be the case for only certain individuals versus others, but trying to get something that's more sustainable out there. I would think though that opioid management or pain management more broadly, is a bit of a different animal than, I'm going to say, your average run-of-the-mill MTM endeavor. You know, for example, adherence with pain management, in some respects, you're kind of looking, well, at least from a persistency perspective, like the opposite. You don't want people taking medications for extended periods of time. Furthermore, I interviewed Dr. Lippy Roy, who's an addiction specialist, and you know, she had a lot to say about, for example, stigmatizing language and certain algorithms that are really important. She talked extensively about the specialized education that she did not get in her standard training. Do we really see, maybe I'll ask you first, Sandra, is this something that is possible for pharmacists or what would be necessary, maybe is a better question, for pharmacists to get skilled up in just this very specialized MTM niche, maybe I want to call it? And what would it take in order to make that happen? Well, it definitely takes uh, focusing on that problem. I, I can tell you that even though it might appear like it's a challenge for pharmacists to be involved, it, it, when you develop a solution that uh, is something you can rally around and come up with you know, some customized solutions for patients and for the systems, then you can start making headway into that. So for example, we have uh, part of the programs that we've developed are embedding pharmacists with behavioral, like integrated behavioral health programs. And part of those programs really do bring in the primary care clinician, the behavioral health provider, the pharmacist, nutrition, several groups together to identify what barriers or, or what challenges patients are experiencing. And then we all contribute to be able to provide that solution that that patient needs for support. The program that I work with with our company is we also provide other vehicles, like we provide telephonic support, we provide telehealth support. We're able to have different touch points depending on the need of the patient and the provider. So we don't just support the patient, but we can also provide consultations for the providers to be able to develop a model that actually works and, and you can replicate and then you can also implement regardless of geographic location. Um, sometimes that's one of the most significant challenges. So there's different ways to approach 
you know, the opioid crisis, for example. Uh, but we're very cognizant of that. And we're constantly working on ways to be able to resolve whatever those gaps are and really create some solutions that help the patient. Just other things that I think about, we're also looking at new testing like pharmacogenomics and making sure patients are receiving the appropriate medication, the appropriate medication class based on their genetics. Uh, so doing things like that, we can uh, potentially identify patients that are not being optimized with the right medic medication just because maybe they don't respond to uh, certain things that are being prescribed. And instead of labeling patients as drug seekers, they could potentially not even be on the correct thing or on the correct class, and we could optimize it so people have better outcomes. Let me ask you this, Todd. Obviously, Symphonia has, which is Sandra's company, has some pretty sophisticated back-end infrastructure. If we're translating this to a community pharmacist, how would you do that crosswalk? So it goes back to what you just got done saying about niche. I could see Sandra's team designing a medication therapy management training that was advanced, meaning you'd need to already understand MTM and have practiced that. But when we're talking about opioid addiction, we're also talking about comorbidity, which is two or more disorders or illnesses taking place at the same time within the same patient. And the rate of comorbidity in patients suffering with opioid epidemic is enormous. It's, it's over 50%. So this is diabetes in addiction, this is hypertension in addiction, this is behavioral health issues, depression, pharmacogenomics and detecting, does this medication even work for this patient, which these psychotropic medications must be tested for, in my opinion. But if, if Sandra's team would come out with, in, in, if I could take a magic wand per se, we come out with a, with a new MTM program, advanced MTM program, we could give to a community pharmacist and say, listen, if you identify a patient, then you would implement MTM MAT or MTM whatever we're going to call it, MTM you know, X, then really drill down into the medication reviews, but understand the sensitivity there's an opioid addiction, a brain disease addiction that is really blowing everything else up. The pharmacist could dig down and, and be able to look at interactions of allergies and foods and other drugs that they're taking. And even over-the-counter community pharmacy, I'm glad you mentioned that, really leads the way. They lead the way in, in patient touch. They're trusted. They have access. However, the elephant in the room of this conversation is payment. So payment models to get this done need to recognize, A, we have an opioid issue. And everybody says that they realize that, but it doesn't seem like it's trickling down to the private insurances and or Medicaid and Medicare systems. If you could invent a new policy, a payment policy that said, if you implement an MTM program into a medication-assisted treatment program for opioid-addicted patients, I know we would see a recovery increase in velocity and in the speed to recovery. And I also know that we would save money because pharmacists would help us to reach recovery faster if, in fact, they were involved in all of this therapy. So I haven't heard anyone at the pulpit of healthcare at all of these conferences that I attend ever talk about medication therapy management and medication-assisted treatment. Hint, hint, if Sandra ever does get an opportunity to be a keynote, 
I know my organization would love to fund that presentation, which is New Season. We're the second largest provider of medication-assisted treatment in the country. And we have pharmacists in our pharmacies, and those pharmacists are completely underutilized. And I've actually exercised with a couple of the pharmacists in Alabama, in Florida, and Mississippi to research the Medicaid laws to see if there's a way to get compensation for the review based on comorbidity. So I'm looking forward to that. I think it's coming, but I I still think there's much work to be done. It's your sort of your thought, Todd, that one of the reasons why, or maybe the main reason even, that pharmacists are not already engaged in opioid management or MTM or MAT is because there is no payment mechanism in order to facilitate that. It's piecemeal. It's all broken up into pieces. Sandra and her team can definitely get compensated for their professional medical advice with regards to MTM. But when you start talking about patients that are dealing with multiple things and you go into an MAT format, which is sometimes being compensated by private, sometimes compensated by government insurances, you hit a snag and there's no way to, unless you're going to pay it out of your pocket, and, you know, our organization charges about 15 to $17 a day, depending on the medication. But you throw an MTM in there, however many cycles of that need to take place. So in asking Sandra, you know, how often, if a patient's on eight medications, do you sit down and do an MTM? So I was going to say, it depends on, you know, who we're contract with and what the requirements are. And it really varies. I mean, the minimum from an MTM Part D is to do a comprehensive medication review once per year. But then we have the ability to do targeted medication reviews throughout the year, every time the patient picks up a medication. But definitely, I mean, I can't echo, you know, what Todd is saying about how it's very piecemeal. Uh, I currently sit on the American uh, Pharmacists Association Board of Trustees and one of our our key uh, initiatives this year has been, and many years now, to to try to achieve provider status for recognition of the services that pharmacists provide in in the federal government with CMS, um, and it unfortunately hasn't happened yet. There has been a focus, though, on opioids, and it's definitely because of all of the attention um, to have the pharmacists at least included in that language and with the current legislation around that. But even that's been a challenge. So that definitely trickles down to the states. And uh, But we're both working from the top down and from the bottom up, from local initiatives, state initiatives, and then federal initiatives, and, and then backwards to see which way we can approach that so that we're more included in, in every aspect of the, the care of the patient and Absolutely. If a patient has an opioid issue on top of chronic conditions, it is very, very challenging to manage patients without the support of every team member. Do you feel that getting provider status is a bit of a prerequisite here for payment or otherwise? Or can pharmacists be a significant player in the interim or or prior to yeah, absolutely. I think you can participate now. I mean, people are doing it now. We're doing work around uh, both the issues around MTM and opioids uh, without necessarily that provider status recognition. I definitely think it would remove a lot of barriers that we're experiencing because um, a lot of times it seems like we're working through different loopholes, trying to work through different channels. We have to go and try to contract with each individual commercial plan, Medicaid plan, do pilots, things that uh, a lot of times are detracting away from us actually being able to provide the clinical service. 
pharmacists. I know a lot of pharmacists that sit around constantly trying to justify FTEs to help the the volume of patients that they're receiving referrals for. There's not enough of us to be able to uh, take on the chronic conditions out there and not to mention the opioid conditions. So if you remove barriers like the provider status issue that we've had, and then just in general, um, recognition for uh, services that we provide at the same level as other providers, we're not asking for more, we're asking for parity. Uh, that would definitely, I think it would help. Uh, but it's still happening despite that. I think as a profession, we've been able to, you know, still continue to really make inroads uh, just because of the shift in the payment to value. Um, that is definitely driving uh, the integration of pharmacy services more because such a huge component of value and outcomes is definitely based on appropriate use of medications. And if you don't understand that, then you're probably a, a system that's not as successful as, as a system that does understand the value of that. Todd, if you, given all of this, if you were in charge of a, say, a Medicaid plan or a payer organization, a health system, someone that had an interest in ensuring or a vested interest in quality outcomes and ensuring that patients did not either become addicted to opioids or received adequate treatment if they were, what would you do? First of all, I would involve a pharmacist. We need to choose pharmacists who are ingrained and and are trusted by these patients. Second, we need to make sure that the entities that are paying for these therapies, whether that be in private insurance, if they're doing it privately, or these state-funded programs, and especially the state grants that are coming in from federal to give treatment to those patients who can't even afford treatment, and I'm rushing trying to get the attention of these policymakers saying, do you know if you involve a pharmacist because this patient, let's call her Melba. So Melba has hypertension, hep C, and she's addicted to heroin. Do you realize that if we get a pharmacist involved to do checks in whatever sequence we come up with, whatever cycle we come up with, I think it needs to be more than one per year. I would say, you know, once every other month at least, and had this pharmacist involved, you would increase the time it takes to get to recovery, which means that doesn't mean you're completely well. That means that you're functioning, you're drug-free from an uh, illicit perspective or the opioid perspective. Um, You're working again. You're back with your family. You know, your family life's improved because you can think, you can get out of bed. So that recovery road will be increased in velocity and speed if that pharmacist were there saying to the patient ongoing, wow, I see what you're going through. Let's make some adjustments in your medications. How's this hypertension medication making you feel? There's that humanistic trust and touch point that I think a counselor that's doing MAT, medication-assisted treatment, they're trusted but they're not medically positioned like a pharmacist is. I feel like the pharmacist, and I can't get off my soapbox on this, I guess, but they're the they're most well-positioned because they do form those personal relationships. They do have the trust, and they, in fact, have the medical and medication expertise. If you're listening to this podcast, please share this podcast with your fellow pharmacist and or fellow doctor or even someone you know in policy, because we need to talk about this more, and we also need to come up with a solution, not only state to state, but uh, but at a national, the national level. Well, it would seem to certainly make sense to take advantage of a 
healthcare provider, which is already known to the patient, is already in the community and already is at the point of dispensing, which would seem to make a ton of sense. It would seem, though, that, you know, one of the first steps here would be to identify a patient that was having an issue. If we're talking about a community pharmacy, how is the pharmacist getting the information in the first place? Because this is, it's a little bit of a, you know, medical as well as pharmacy, probably, information. So there would have to be some information that was coming over from the physician side such that that patient got picked up to begin with. It's a great question. So we know e-prescribing is working very well. We know that the electronic health record is doing more interfacing with the pharmacy management systems. We know that programs like Marixa have libraries of information prepared for pharmacists that want to dig deeper into therapies. We know that there's trade organizations, buying groups, the NCPA, the APHA, who are out there building CE courses, continuing education for pharmacists. We know the world of social media. We know the world. I believe that if there was a magic program that we woke up tomorrow and Sandra came up with a program and she put it together and she packetized it and digitized it and got it approved at some state or federal level, I think we could within 90 days see a significant usage of that in the world of what is medication-assisted treatment and opioid addiction recovery because we're thirsty for it, we're poised for it, everybody's sensitive to it. And community pharmacists, long-term care pharmacists, any pharmacist, specialty pharmacists, they all gravitate towards that. If they knew they had an opportunity to build a new patient base and that patient was the addicted patient to opioids, they would grab onto that with two hands. Uh, that's just the personality of our pharmacists. And I already know, you know, in what Sandra said today, that she's already poised and prepared for that too. Sandra, what do you think about this? I, I definitely agree with what Todd is saying. And um, just, just to give you a sense of how we identify patients, um, even at the community level, one of the, the, the ways that Symphonia RX is structured is that um, aside from being integrated in some of our, our programs, we also receive claims information from payers uh, about patients. And so we're able to see through a claims basis the prescriptions that are coming in from multiple prescribers, from multiple prescriptions themselves, and be able to identify patients that might be at risk because they have you know, a, a large quantity of prescriptions. But there's other tools out there. I think for community pharmacists, when I think about ways that they can identify, they could look at things like the prescription drug monitoring programs that are out there in most states now, uh, and they can look before they dispense to see if a patient is picking up medications at other sites and then definitely work around um, those types of tools to be able to then create opportunities to, to interact with a patient and then again advocate uh, with that patient throughout the system. So one of the things that I always keep in mind is that it's not, it's not one provider. It's not one setting. It's all of us working together. Um, I always think, you know, there's always been challenges. Is a, a telephonic consultation with the pharmacist as good as a face-to-face -face interaction with the pharmacist? And I, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. And I think it's both of us also interacting with the primary care doctors, with the physicians, with the hospitals, with whatever systems that the patients are interacting with so that we provide comprehensive care for everything and not just opioids, for, but for the entire conditions that the patient is experiencing. And unless we really do that and break uh, that fragmentation pattern that we currently have, patients are not going to be successful. So it's everything that we can do collectively to work together. And, and so I've always been 
a very significant advocate of interoperability, being able to access each other's systems, really communicating what's going on, uh, not because we want to hold the information for, for ourselves, but really create the opportunity for us to communicate about the patient, because ultimately it is about that individual. Uh, so that is something that I think is, is a significant barrier right now that's happening within our system. And unless we address some of those underlying infrastructure problems, it, it is a challenge. But I think slowly we are starting to overcome those. Uh, it's just a matter of people willing to, to collaborate together. Well, here's to hoping that collaboration is on the uptick. What do you think about what Todd said about putting together a package that community pharmacists could use to be part of the army facing down the opioid crisis? I think it's a great idea. And I think one of the things that we've tried to do when we're working with community pharmacies is, is really understand how they can implement that within the current environment that they uh, practice. And so when we are trying to create solutions in collaboration with community pharmacists, we do take into account what their workflow is, what their barriers are for, for paying for these models. How do they actually staff their current programs to be able to provide a service like this? And so those are the types of things that we have to look at, identify, and then really plan for in order for programs to be successful. If we just create a package and, and hope that a community pharmacist is going to be able to adopt it and implement it without any of that look at the infrastructure and workflow, it's probably not going to be as successful unless we really take a look at that. So we're thinking about that. We're advocating for, for structures that support that. And it very much goes to the fact that, you know, policymakers, legislators, they have to be able to understand the needs of community pharmacists to be able to participate and then have payment alignment that helps support that if we want a true solution to these problems. Your thoughts, Todd? The passionate people are the ones that are changing things. And Sandra is one of those passionate people and she's credible. And But we need other passionate players. I almost need a Dr. Uh, Zubin Demania to get involved in this. He's known as Z-Dog MD and He's very jovial and raps about, you know, the state of healthcare. And How's your rapping skills? That's right. <laughs> so if if we could get more people that, that are being listened to, to really to push that, but then on the back end, start going to some of the lobbying groups that we trust, you know, unless they're a physician, unless they're a um, pharmacist, policymakers don't really understand it. Sandra, could you just talk a little bit about Symphonia RX and who your customers tend to be? Our customers are health payers, uh, health plans, and actually systems and physicians. So as an example, we're working with uh, accountable care organizations. We're working with uh, different private clinics. We're working with hospitals and hospital systems. Um, and then also payers that have mandates that are required of them and they require solutions. Uh, a lot of them, as, as they move into the value uh, and the, the outcomes that they have to provide, we also then create solutions. We might have started off with one type of program, but then design things over the course of our relationship that really helps meet the needs for what's required of them. But ultimately, you know, I think one of the things that as a company as that we work with here, we're really very passionate about making sure that the patient has the best outcomes. And we've always thought that if we could do the right thing for the patient and if we can have a solution that works and has impact and improves the outcomes for that patient, that we can be sustainable because we're doing the right thing. So you have said several times solutions and programs. What that consists of is both the design of the approach or the initiative or the evidence-based medicine, the pathway maybe, as well as you supply the people in order to actually implement what you've come up with. Is that the case? 
That's correct. Yes, we've got different relationships. We actually partner with universities and colleges of pharmacy. We also work with the faculty and students to be able to create the workforce and the training that they need to then create their own jobs, honestly. So we have some geographic location across the United States of a pretty large pharmacy footprint. Um, and then we're also training, uh, doing workforce development. We have residency programs that are accredited and actually, you know, creating the future for pharmacists that want to practice in this type of setting and in this type of involvement with patients. And Todd, besides being the founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, which is an amazing network uh, consisting of a whole lot of really interesting and cool shows dedicated to pharmacy and pharmacists, Talk about a little bit about your work with New Season. Well, thank you. Um, so New Season, which you can find newseason.com, they're dedicated to medication-assisted treatment programs. I was actually brought on two years ago to marry health systems, policy makers, politicians, pharmacy into our centers. So every time we have a center that is placed on the list that I need to be paying attention to, I will physically prepare that territory with regards to appointments with hospitals, other physician groups, pain management teams, and really marry them to our goals of reaching recovery for each of our patients. And some of those centers are, you know, 1,500 patients deep. Others are very small with maybe 100 patients deep. And then it's my role to continue to grow uh, those relationships and, and build those relationships between uh, new seasons treatment centers within that territory and in introducing the nuance, the non-understanding and erasing the stigma of what is opioid addiction. And Stacy is surprisingly, even in healthcare, there are negative stigmas that are absolutely not true. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps and stop using. They have no idea what opioid addiction does to your brain, how it transforms your brain negatively and basically keeps you in a prison of what is addiction. So I'm very proud of my organization, but not just that organization. There are other organizations out there who are very good national organizations working on this, and I'm sure that they're being collaborative as well. If you are a pharmacist, you're in Austin, you're in Oregon, you're in Mississippi, Pennsylvania, Florida, uh, we probably have a new season in some territory that you could get, number one, more information, but also, number two, work with that center to really deliver uh, better collaborative care. So we've got some call to actions here for, for policymakers, for payers, providers, and pharmacists. I thank you both for being on the podcast today. I think this is a really important message and you've both given some very crucial and key information, which will definitely drive us toward a solution. Stacy, thank you so much for having us. I knew it took a while to get us together. And Sandra, I am a fan, but we keep looking out for you and we have to meet up at a conference someday. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Stacy, very much. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you, so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. 
Thanks so much for listening.